Well, good morning. It is good to be here today. It's a good, wonderful Sunday. I don't know if it's going to start raining or not, but if it rains, fantastic. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, which is, there's a lot in Revelation 17 and 18. There's a harlot that's riding a beast, and this beast has seven heads and ten horns, and the seven heads are kings and kingdoms, and some are in the past, and some are here, and some are in the future, and then there's ten horns, which are ten nations, and you know, what are these nations? And there's, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of like, what are, what are we talking about here in, this, in these two chapters? And like the book of Revelation does so many times, it, you keep reading, it says, and here's an answer to what the seven horns are and what the, the ten horns, excuse me, seven heads. It kind of answers it, but it doesn't say these are these specific things. The ten horns are ten kingdoms, ten nations. But it doesn't say exactly which ones they are. And there's still some mystery there. And it's kind of like being married in the sense that there's a little mystery there. Now, I'm hoping I don't get in trouble here. But as a husband of a wife, there is some mystery, right? Because if anybody can ever write a book that says, here's how you fully understand women, you will be rich instantly, okay? Now, I will say this. My wife is a very low-maintenance wife. She's not drama queen she's very easy to get along with but she's still a woman okay so there's things that I don't understand I do know that when the boys and I kind of get things ready in the house before she comes home if she's out doing something and we you know do some sweeping maybe a little mopping because she sweeps and mops every day unload the dishwasher put some dishes in the dishwasher change some clothes out fold some clothes do that kind of stuff she likes that that's pleasing to her, and she's appreciative. And she comes home, and she's like, oh, I don't have to do this now. This is great. And she likes it when I carve out a little bit of time just to spend with her. She, she likes that. So I got that, right? I, I've got that down. I don't always do that perfectly, but I understand that about her. But like I said, she's a woman. I remember, now I'm going to say this because she is low maintenance, and she is very forgiving. But it was a while back. It's been years. She was really annoyed with me one day, like really annoyed with me because... She had a dream where I annoyed her in the dream. Okay, do you remember that? I, I, okay, so there's a mystery there. Now, I have an option. I can, <laughs> has anybody else experienced that? Am I the only one? Okay, good, I see two at least. And y'all are smart to not raise your hand because, like I said, she's low maintenance. I'm probably not in big trouble, but I'll repent. At any rate, so what can I do about that? I could, I could go down to my basement into my, my little man cave area and try to figure out all these things that are a mystery to me about my wife and my marriage and I can spend time doing that figuring out okay so if she does have a dream about me and I know her what do I do how do I I could figure all that stuff out or I could try to anyway or I could make application of those things that I do know I I know what she likes and and if I do those things you know happy wife happy life you've all heard this right so if I if I try to work on those things I, I can still try to figure out some of the mysteries right but the mysteries are that. They're just, they're mysteries. And whether or not I figure that out or not is really immaterial for me having a good life with my wife, a good marriage. There's time to go figure some of these things out. But really the question is, what is the big picture? In these chapters, there are some really fantastic stuff, some, some really amazing imagery. And it has meaning. It has specific meaning. And when the time comes, it will be made known. Right now, it is interesting to go spend the time in figuring out, trying to figure out 
what exactly all this stuff exactly means. It's fun. It's a good exercise. And if you do it with the right heart, you get into the Word and you're going into different books and you're, and you're figuring all this stuff out, which is, which is good. I've got my interpretations of what these things are. And in, in our Catalyst class today, we touched on some of those, which, like I said, it's a good thing. But like I talked to the kids, it's important that we figure out what is the real application for us. What is it that the Scripture is saying to us? What is it that God is telling us in this that we should take home and move with it? Put, put those shoes on and walk in it. What are those things? Like I said, she's a very low-maintenance, practical gal, so I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. But there's so many specifics in this that, you know, the four hours that I'm allotted to talk to you today, I can't get into all of that. Actually, it should be pretty brief. Um, it's 11, I'm looking at the clock. It is 11 o'clock, so I'll, I'll try to focus. Now, when I'm writing notes for this stuff, I had like nine pages of notes. And I know it's like, okay, cut that, cut that, cut that. Because the specifics, I don't want to say they're not important. But they're less important than pulling out what God wants you to hear and what, what, what he wants you to do about what he's saying. Right? So, let's just dive in, right? This is a good question is, what is our practical application from all of this today? We're going to dive right into chapter 17. Before I do that, let me pray. Briefly, Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for your word and the clarity in your word. Lord, I know there's mysteries in here, but Father, I just pray that you give us what it is that you want us to hear. Let it find a place in our hearts and our minds so that we can apply them to our lives and glorify you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 17 and verse 1. <clears throat> then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, and of the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead was a name. It was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So here we have a beast and we have a harlot. Now we have... Getting into this imagery a little bit, you've got the Antichrist, and you've got Babylon. And that, that probably was made clear back in chapters 13 and 14, and it's made clear here as well. And as I mentioned in Catalyst class, these are antagonists. Definitely, these are a thumbs down, bad. You can, you can read that pretty easily, right? These are the bad guys. Uh, so this is something that this lady, this, this harlot, is holding a golden cup filled with filth. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints. So this harlot is a system that persecutes and kills Christians. And why a harlot? Why, why would this be a harlot? Now, throughout the Bible, we see a harlot. We, we read in uh, Judges that the, the people, Mr. Derek read it, the people would go against God and, and play the harlot. And we see this time and time again throughout the Bible. A harlot 
is the enemy of a marriage covenant. And I want you to remember that as we go through this. A harlot is really the enemy of a marriage covenant. Let me continue on in verse 7. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So this, this might not be central of importance to today's discussion, but those are some words that are kind of weird and possibly confusing. The beast that was and is not and yet is. And remember that the beast is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is a really bad copy of Christ. We've got Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. The unholy trinity. and Taking the place, so to speak, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here we have this beast that was and is not and, and yet is. It almost kind of sounds like a bad copy of who was and is and is to come. But he is not but is. If you recall, the Antichrist received a mortal wound. And when he was healed of that wound, whether it was a false resurrection or a miraculous healing, the people of the earth said, wow, look at the beast. Who, who is like the beast? They're, they're amazed and marveled at the fact that he was still alive. Now, once again, not central to the, the whole point of today, but they're looking at this beast and saying, he's not, he's dead, but he is. So I think this is a picture that Satan is giving, really God's in control of all this, of him trying to copy Christ and copy a resurrection. Whether it was a miraculous healing or a false resurrection or whatever, that's really what those, are, those words are talking about. So don't get all Googled up and, and, and messed up with the words. Because what I really want you to remember out of today is, what is a harlot? There's more to it than this, but it's an enemy of a marriage, a marriage covenant. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and it is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. So we got seven kings or kingdoms, world systems throughout history. It says that five are no longer. The sixth is here and the seventh is to come. The last would be the seventh. And, and the last is like with Antichrist. So the eighth and the seventh are, are together. So they'll be in power during the great tribulation together. The seventh is worse than all the others before him. And if you look at Jake, uh, Jeremiah 37, Jeremiah 37, it mentions a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is a very prominent person in the, in the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We hear that quite a bit. But when we get to Jacob, remember Jacob wrestled with the Lord, right? He walked with a hitch in his giddy up after he did that. But during that wrestling match, the angel was asking him what his name was. He says, Jacob. And then finally, at the end of that, the angel gave him a name. And his name was Israel. 
So the time of Jacob's trouble is a time of Israel's trouble. And in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it reads, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jacob is Israel. Jacob was named Israel by God. This time that he's talking about is the time that is the worst time for the nation of Israel. And we can think back through history, reading the Old Testament, reading Judges, reading the, pretty much every book in the Old Testament, and even in, or after the New Testament. The nation of Israel did not have an easy time. They were constantly being persecuted to the point in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and they scattered about the earth and they were no longer a nation. And you remember in the 1940s, the Nazis, even though they weren't even a nation, set out to destroy the Jews and, and murdered approximately 6 million of them. That's a pretty rough time for a people who don't even have a nation and you're being persecuted at that level. So we're talking about a time that's worse than that. This is pretty bad. This time of Jacob's trouble. And this is referring, like I said, to the time we're in now in the, the Great Tribulation. Now being in the reading, we're not in the Great Tribulation right now, just to make that clear. So Jacob, the time of Jacob's trouble is what we're talking about. And so what I want you to get your heads wrapped around is this is a really, really rough time for the nation of Israel. And, of course, the purpose of this is to bring Israel back to God. So keep that in mind. Let's carry on with verse 12. The ten horns which you saw, of course, this is once as Revelation does, says here's something, it's a mystery, and here let me explain a little bit about it. This is the explanation. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Are called chosen and faithful. So, begs the question, who are these ten kings? What are these eventual kingdoms? You know, are they European nations? Are they, what is it? What, what is the takeaway? Just a little preview here. What is the takeaway of this? Here we've got the beast. You've got a harlot. You've got a world system that is the antagonist. The ones that are pulling people away from God. Remember, a harlot is someone that is the enemy of a marriage covenant. And I think some of you may know where I'm going here. That picture that God gives us of his relationship with us is a marriage covenant. But what does it say when it mentions Jesus here? It says that Jesus overcomes it because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is in charge of this whole operation. Today, yesterday, when the world goes completely nuts in the future, he is 100% in control. It has a purpose, he has a plan, and he has an outcome that's going to happen and it's going to glorify God. We can get balled up in all the detail and the minutia of what's going on. We can even see what's going on and think, wow, this is some really tough stuff that's happening on the earth. 100-pound hailstones, the seas turning to blood. And we can, we can have a tendency to think, my gracious, I mean, God is pretty mean. Think about the plagues of Egypt. The purpose of those plagues was to get his people out of Egypt, out of bondage. The purpose of these is the same thing. The church is gone. The church has been raptured up and in heaven. And what he has now is his chosen people 
the people of Israel that are on earth, and he loves them. He wills that all be saved. Second Peter chapter 3. With that, he is sending down reminder and reminder and reminder. Remember, God is very patient, and he gives them a lifetime of reminders and then turns up the heat and says, now there's a lot of people being saved during this time, but there's a lot of people that aren't. I had a discussion with our, in our Catalyst class today about a, a fellow I used to work with, a very pleasant person, smart guy, a nice guy, atheist, and I was having a philosophical discussion with him about right and wrong. Now, his stance is there's no objective truth. Because to say that there's an objective truth, that there is right and there is wrong based in some reality is to say that there is, once you get down to the brass tacks, there's a God. Because where does that morality come from? So his stance is there's really no objective morality. It's just how society trains you. And so I asked him this question. And it's a question that I've heard other people ask, so it's, it's, a, little, it's a little gross. But it gets the point across. I asked him this, now knowing that no one is innocent, we're all born in sin, but I said, then if there's no right or wrong, how do you feel or is it right if you took an innocent as you can possibly get two-year-old and killed him with a knife, chopped him up? That sounds awful. And he thought about it for a while, and I guarantee you, I know what he was thinking. He said to himself, that is wrong, but he could not bring himself to say it because he was smart enough to know that if he said it, he would lose the argument. So he hardened his heart, and he said, ultimately, there's nothing right or wrong about it. It's neutral. And I said, okay, well, how do you feel about it? He said, I don't like it. And I said, well, you need to think about why you don't like it. Because it's ingrained in you because you're an image bearer of God. We all have a conscience that says this is right and this is wrong because we are image bearers of God. That's where we get that from. He knew that. He did not tell me that, but I guarantee you he 100% knew that but could not get out of his stance and say, I know that's wrong. He knew it was wrong, but he would not say it because he knew the implications of it. Smart man, very smart man, but stupid on a level that is amazing because if you think about it, if you know something to be right, if you know something to be right and true, doesn't it make sense to grab a hold of it and apply that truth because it's true? The issue is most people are not on a journey to find truth. Most people are on a happiness journey. We want to be happy. Hey, look, I want to be happy. I'll, I'll tell you, I do want to be happy. If I stood up here and told you I want to be sad, then I'm, there's something wrong with me. I do want to be happy. But I do understand that sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, and the truth will make me uncomfortable and make me unhappy. And at that point in time, if it's a truth, I have a choice. I can try to change the truth or I could try to change me. And one of those works and one of them doesn't. One of them's hard and one of them's seemingly easy. To try to change the truth, people do that all the time. It, they, they're not actually changing truth. They're just lying to themselves. So if you hear a truth and it makes you uncomfortable, those are your options. If it's a truth out of the word of God that makes you uncomfortable, here's your options. Tell God to change or you change. And I'm going to tell you, God ain't going to change. He's the same yesterday today and tomorrow and thank God he is because he's already perfect sometimes that truth makes us uncomfortable but it's still the truth and it will lead us to freedom the truth shall set you free so with that well that was a long conversation there <clears throat> we've got this picture of 10 kings 
And it doesn't say that they're going to be these specific kings or kingdoms. You know, where are they? It, and perhaps you discuss this in your catalyst class, and that's great. And, and I'm really happy that this fall we're going to have a chance to have in-depth discussions. You know, drink coffee while we, while we talk about these, these mysteries and get into the Word and explore them. I think that's amazing, and I think it's a really cool thing to do. But given a limited amount of time that we have today, we're not going to get into that. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter. What is the Word telling us? What is our practical application from today? Real quick for here, it's say, hey, don't align yourself with the world and the world's wisdom. You want to align yourself with the kingdom of God. That's a pretty obvious truth. And especially when you read, these will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them. Because why? He is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. He's where truth comes from. He is truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Wow, that sounds pretty narrow. It, guess what? Narrow is the path that leads to life. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Matthew chapter 7 is an amazing chapter, and it will scare you to death if you're not saved. It'll scare you to, it'll make you shake if you're not living for the Lord. Because Jesus lays it out very clearly and says, this is a yes and this is a no. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's still a yes, and that's still a no. He's not changing his mind. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. James 4.4 4 reads, Adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Is war with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here we've got this world system. Whatever the kings are, whatever the kingdoms are, it's a world system that brings us away from God, brings people away from God. Here this harlot sitting on these seven hills and these waters that are the many peoples. She has influence over people, and she's a harlot. She's an enemy of a marriage covenant. That's such an important thing that we're going to get to here in a minute. That's the takeaway from here. Do not align yourself. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. Duh. He's God. And I, I, I used to think... And, in a, in a sense, I still do. I, what in the world? The world's going to be deceived to the point that they're going to gather an army to fight God? It's like, how stupid is that? How can they be so deceived? Well, they are now. Look at the world now. Look at the wisdom of the world now. It's amazingly stupid. Ama it's funny to the point of being extremely sad. This is what I was talking about earlier about, you know, objective truth and subjective truth. You know, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Muslim or a Hindu or a Taoist or a Buddhist or a Wiccan or, or whatever. And that's okay because you're sincere in that. So you'll see God. You're fine because you're sincere in what you believe. That makes no sense. If, if I identified as a speed bump and was really sincere about that, and laid out in the middle of the parking lot, I'd be a dead sincere idiot. Because even if I'm sincere, it doesn't make it true. That's what the world has lost, is this objective truth that is there no matter how it makes you feel. Your feelings are given to you by God in most instances that are there to check yourself. And you check your feelings against the objective truth that's in the world. And if they line up, congratulations, and I like it when that happens. And when they don't, that's God saying, there's something about you that needs to change. My word is there like a mirror. 
And when you look at it, it doesn't say if you see yourself. It says when you see yourself, you have an option. You can close that book and walk on and forget what you saw. Objective truth. Or you can remember what you look like and walk in it. That's what it says about the Word of God in the book of James. Love the book of James. I highly recommend the book of James. Go read John. Go read James. James says, if you're a Christian, do this. Love it. And James does not pull punches. James has said, this is the way it is because James is speaking truth. And if it hurts your feelings, good. Because guess what? We all have areas in our life that need change. And that's when we confront the truth or the truth confronts us and we make that decision. Am I going to try to change truth or am I going to change myself? Once again, I recommend the latter. Change yourself. All right, let's move on. Verse 15. Then he said to me, this is the angels, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast. Let me just stop there for one second. These are ten nations and kings that were in league with the harlot, in league with the beast. And then all of a sudden, they turn on the harlot and kill her. Because that's what they want to do. But they're doing God's bidding. God, like I said, God's 100% in charge of all this. God said, yep, that's what I wanted you to do. Thank you very much. They think they're working against God, but they're doing God's bidding. I'll continue on. To be of one mind to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So the harlot that we mentioned, she has influence over the people of the earth, right? She's sitting on the waters that are the peoples of the earth. The ten rulers in Babylon, the ten rulers will kill the harlot, Babylon. Because why in the world would that happen? The Antichrist, Satan, put together this world system and put together this world religion. We really haven't discussed that a whole lot, but it's, is this a world's economy is it a world religion is it both is it a specific city this babylon is it a city system for today's discussion doesn't matter it's a harlot it's the enemy of a marriage covenant that will draw people away from god so that's not the central focus but here but here's a here's a perhaps a reason because to see something like this happen where it's just a complete turnaround and it might not make sense. Why in the world would these kings then turn on the harlot that was, they were in league? Well, if you recall, the beast does a thing called the abomination of desolation, where he goes into the temple and declares himself God. It's a possibility there that the beast has put together this one world religion and Unitarianism. I'm okay, you're okay, you do you, you're fine, are you sincere? Well, very good, you'll see God. Very deceptive, because that's not the truth. And people love that. People flock to that. And people will just say, this is great because I can do me and still go to heaven. Lie. It's a deception. But Satan will bring that in so that people will believe this and and be deceived. And then there comes a point where he says, I'm God. Yeah, you believe what you want. I'm God. You worship me. You have to kill that system. That's what I think happened. Now, once again, not central to this. If you think it's a little different, that's fine. But here's the focus. Babylon, the harlot, bad. The beast, bad. Influence from the world, bad. Jesus and his word, 
good. That's really the message here, just kind of breaking it down. But what do we do about it? That's the real thing. Like I was telling the kids, hey, is there anything that you don't know about the Bible? Yeah, there's stuff we don't know. Okay, go figure it out. That's fine. But don't figure it out. Don't go spend the time working in these mysteries while not applying what you already know. Because really, quite honestly, why would God reveal more to you if you're not applying what he already did tell you? Why would he give you more when you're not using what he gave you? That's actually a key to understanding the Bible, is applying what you do know, and then God says, here's a little more. Here's a little more. Oh, you're doing that too. Here's a little more. It doesn't save you, but there's a little thing called growth, and that's a big part of it. That's the key. That is the key, is taking what you do know and applying it. Now, we're going to go into chapter 18 now. And chapter 18 is longer than chapter 17. And it has really one central focus. The utter, absolute, complete obliteration, destruction of Babylon. The whole chapter talks about how desolate Babylon becomes. Because God's not having it. God says, I have a marriage covenant with my people, and this is the harlot, and I'm going to remove her from the picture. God is so, so, so loving of his people that he will take that thing that will draw his people from them and destroy it completely. A whole chapter discussing the destruction of this. Of course, this is also after... The beast comes up and says, I'm God. And he's like, oh, no, you're not. If you read about that in the abomination of desolation, it says, if you're in Jerusalem, run, because it's coming. Let's get into chapter 18. I'm just going to read right through it, and you'll just see it is boom, 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 boom. Destruction, destruction, destruction of Babylon. Ver, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her wrath for fornication, and the kings of earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So you can see this is an influence on the world that is both monetary, you know, commercialism, as well as spiritual and religious this vast system of the world that, that God just finally says, we're done. Verse 5, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her, and the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in that same measure... Give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and I will not see sorrow. That's the world today. Everything's fine. I've got my own truth. I'm not going to change. You say that's truth and it makes me sad. I'm not going to deal with that. Here's my truth. I identify as fill in the blank. How foolish can you be? I sit as a queen. I'm no widow, and I will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. 
and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance, they will fear of her torment. They're standing at a distance now. They've, they've called for her destruction, and they're standing back. Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense and fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and the bodies and souls of men. Here's, a, here's an economic system, religious system that traded men, the souls of men. Human trafficking. This is not good stuff. And God says, I am done with this. Verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment. Weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such a great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning and saying, what is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you Holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Babylon is dead. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. The harlot that has influence over the people of the earth, which has influence now, by the way. This is not just something that's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. No, this specific destruction is happening in the Great Tribulation. But recall, this harlot sits on five kings that were, and a sixth that is, and a seventh that's going to come with the beast. So therefore, the, the harlot is in league with the kings of the earth now. This influence is in the earth now. And, and if you can't see it now, well, think back ten years, now think today. The world is crazy ten years ago. It is absolutely crazy today. And not just watching the news, but just talking with people whose eyes are not opened. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It always has been. And to speak to someone a number of years ago, the foolishness was, it was foolishness. But today, today it's, it's so silly that it's sad. The things that people will believe because it makes them happier than the truth. I mean, if it makes you happy, it's good and true. That's really the world system now. So this deception that's coming, it's being played out now. It's, it's, it's unfolding right now to a level of absolute craziness. Just look at the world, look at lost people. And ask them some questions. 
talk with them, engage with them. And the things that they come up with as truth is utter nonsense. Stuff you could put up against a fifth grader that has a brain or a five-year-old. And a five-year-old will tear down their logic like that. But it doesn't matter because it's not their truth or that is their truth or this is my truth. It's just whatever makes you happy. It's weird. It's, it's strange that the world is actually like that today. Let me continue on <clears throat> the finality of Babylon's fall here, in, uh, starting in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, a great stone, a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down, and it shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, or flautists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints. And of all who were slain on the earth. Now next week in chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Amazing stuff. And then after that in the battle, chapters 20, 21, 22, there's a real big change, a real big turn, and we get away from this destruction, and we have new heaven, new earth, after the millennial reign, and it's amazing, and you see the city come down, the new Jerusalem come down, and describes new Jerusalem, and the new earth, and, and us, and where we're going to be, and it's really cool. I, th- I think I said it last week. Go ahead and read chapters 21, 22. Do it now. It's awesome. They kind of give you a little sneak peek of, oh, wow, this is good stuff, right? The stuff we're reading about now, it's like, woo, this is pretty heady stuff. Pretty heavy. But for now, let's talk about this. Let's get through this really heavy, heady, harlot, beast, Babylon. What does it mean? I've said it a few times today. A focus in these two chapters is obviously Jesus Christ. He overcomes them. But what is he overcoming? The harlot. The harlot is the enemy of a marriage covenant. What is the counterfeit and unholy substitute for our relationship with Jesus Christ? It's idolatry and false religion. It's universalism. It's, it's whatever you want to say that's out there that's going to draw us away from God, and that could be pretty obvious, you know, because the world is obviously going to be heading towards one world religion, and like I mentioned before, you know, hey, if it's good for you, it's good for you, you're fine, you're, you know, sincere in what you believe, so right on, that's good, right? And the world's falling for that now, I mean, to a level that's extreme right now, and that's where we're going, and we're, I say we're going there pretty soon, we're, we're pretty much there. I think we're going to be really arriving there really soon, like parking the bus and, and getting off. The world's just chomping at the bit to do what they want to do. Truth is truth. Truth is not subjective. In today's world, you know, if you think homosexuality is a sin, you're looked at as evil. If you won't affirm someone's gender because they're pretending to be something, you're looked at as evil. And so, so why is the world really focusing in on this stuff? Well, it's because sexuality, human sexuality, is actually sacred. You know, we, we, we call a lot of things sacred. But if you look at 
the man-woman relationship, it is absolutely sacred in our Christian belief. Sacred to the point where that's the picture, marriage, that God gives us to demonstrate his relationship with his people. That's what marriage is. It's God's picture. It's his demonstration of his relationship with his people. It's all throughout the Bible. If you look in Genesis, of course, you know, they were created male and female. You see that. Well, the book, of, the book of Ruth, the entire book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is there to, you know, give the genealogy of King David, obviously, and then ultimately King Jesus, and kind of a little ironicness in there that, you know, in his lineage is a, a, a non-Jew, a Gentile, Ruth. But what is the real overarching look at the book of Ruth? It's a picture of Christ in the church. Ruth, a Gentile, is redeemed by Boaz, a man that is wealthy and able to, willingly, while there's a nearer kinsman that by law should redeem but cannot. All right, what's the picture there? Ruth, a Gentile, needs redeeming, the church. Boaz, a willing redeemer that does it because of love, that's Christ. And the person at the gates that's the nearer redeemer that says, I cannot do that. The law. By law, he was supposed to. Once again, a picture of, and what an awesome story that is. You know, when you're reading through Ruth and you come to the point where Boaz wants to marry, you're like, yeah, and then there's this nearer redeemer. You're like, oh, no. And, you know, if you read ahead, then Boaz, you know, does some nice little talking to the guy, and and he loves Ruth, and he winds up marrying her. That's a picture of God's relationship with his people, and that's a major purpose of that book. It's all throughout the book. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. You've all read this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about marriage between men and women? He's talking about the church. Well, he'll clarify this. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does to the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Sounds like something out of the book of Genesis. And the two shall become one flesh. And he wraps up here in verse 32. This is a great mystery. It was a mystery before. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. It was a mystery before Paul wrote this down. What were all these things about marriage? I mean, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom all the time. What was he talking about? What are all these things in the Old Testament that are talking about marriage covenants? Why they're so important? That's what God gave his people as a picture, as a demonstration of his relationship to us. And then in steps a harlot. What is a harlot? The enemy of a marriage covenant. That is the big takeaway in chapter 17 and 18 to me. Is the harlot in the world today? Absolutely. Is the harlot's purpose in the world today to draw people away from their covenant relationship with God or prevent them from getting into it? Absolutely. If you're in a marriage relationship, is it possible that a harlot could come in and mess things up? Yeah, it is. 
What's our takeaway? Where are we placing our time, our talents, our resources, our attention? Is it with Christ? Is it with our marriage relationship with Christ? Or is it with the harlot, the world? It says time and time again, God's relationship with his people, marriage, right? The harlot, not good. If you're friends with the world, you're enemies with God. If you love the world, God's not in you. The world is all around us. The world is rearing its ugly head in ways that I would have thought in the past would be so blatant and so illogical that people would poo-poo it with no problem. But they're fleeing to it. They're flocking to it because it makes them happy because they don't have to deal with with their own morality, they don't have to deal with a God that may hold them accountable. Even though the truth is right in their face, just like the guy I was talking to about, obviously something that is evil and wrong, but he could not bring himself to say that because he knew it was true. It's that deception. And I mentioned, I've wondered before, how could the world be so deceived, reading this, that they would follow this system that's obviously out to kill them? And we see it happening today. So my plea to you is honor the marriage covenant. Obviously, if you're married to your husband or wife today, obviously that one. In doing so, you're honoring what God has given us as a picture of his relationship with us. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, honor your husband like we should honor Christ. It's a picture of where, what we should do. But what do we do? What do we do? What is the takeaway? What, what's our practical application for this? What are we doing? When we leave here, what are we going to do? Right now, we have knowledge that's stuck in our head that the world is evil. The message of the world is bad. The words in this Bible, God's word, are true. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes the world's message is easy to follow because we've got no accountability with it. But ultimately... Which one is better? Ultimately, which one is true? Ultimately, which one will bring you to a salvation? Which one's going to bring you to a point where you are following truth? The world's trappings are very, very enticing. For me, too. I, for me, too. I'm a human. Is there more I should do to step away from the world? Absolutely. So I'm talking to me, too. But is there more you should do? You know, I think back to, like, I'm here today because I had, a, I had a father that gave birth to me, and he had a father. And Actually, my father didn't give birth to me, but you know what I mean. I'm not one of those. I don't think men can get pregnant. <laughs> but you go back far enough in history, somebody in my line was in a battle in World War II, or somebody was in a battle in World War I, or somebody was in a battle with a sword fighting people, and they lived, and the lineage went on. Somebody next to them died, and their lineage died. Everyone in here can say that. You come from a line, apparently, of some sort of champion that made it, that was courageous and fought for their life. And we'll get nervous talking to someone about our Lord and Savior. What are we doing? Where's the courage? Once again, it's, that's not what saves us, but through Christ, through that truth, 
you'll be given courage. Knowing him is so far beyond anything the world has to offer. And I'm, listen, I'm looking forward to the, the millennial period and after in heaven and then back to the earth and the new earth. That's fantastic. I was saved and will be there. But I'm saved now. I'm saved for now as well. Whenever I die, it's not, that's when it begins. It's now. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I'm a member of his family. I'm on his team. And my job is to perpetuate his kingdom, glorify his name, speak his name, speak the truth. That may hurt someone's feelings. That's not my goal. I, that's not my goal to hurt someone's feelings. But if the truth hurts, good, because now we're given the choice to change ourselves or to try to change the truth. And you can't change the truth. So if there's anyone out here today that has never fully given your heart, your life, yourself to Christ, today is the day of salvation. I will tell you this is the truth, the word of God. You can follow it logically, it makes sense. You can look at it archaeologically, and it makes sense. You can look at it from any perspective you want and try to tear it down, and it will not be torn down. Try it. I, I'm telling you, I, I'm confident in it because I have tried it. It's the truth. And the words in there are salvation. Christ is salvation. Sometimes that makes people uncomfortable because it's narrow. But I'm going to tell you that it is the most inclusive exclusivity I've ever heard of because everybody's invited. Everybody's invited. Do you want to be with Christ? Guess what he'll say? Yes, because you're invited. Everybody is. Because thank God it's not like every single other religion in the world, every single other religion in the world, that's based on your works and what you do and why God should let you into heaven because of the things you've done. The fact that you've done enough good, that your good outweighs your bad to the point that when you finally meet your maker and he weighs out your good and your bad, it comes out, oh, where is it, where is it? Oh, wow, you've got more good than bad. Well, I guess I owe you heaven and eternity because that God's standard is about that far above evil. No way. If this is neutral, evil, and good, and you're good, and then you're bad, and you're good, and you're bad, and you weigh it all out, and you're above the line, I'll say by this much, is that God's standard, that you're that high above evil? No. God's standard is absolute perfection. Bad news, because none of us, none of us, not a one of us, no, not one, meet that standard. But God knows that. So God says, okay, I've got to be loving, because I am loving. Merciful, because I am merciful, and just. I have to be all of these things. How in the world does this work? They weren't perfect 100% of the time. Justice says you will pay for your crime. Let's say there was a guy who was a, I don't know, a, a surgeon, saved thousands of lives, but then he committed a crime, robbed a bank, and killed somebody. And he's in court, and he says to the judge after he was found guilty, and the judge says, you're going to jail. He says, but judge... I killed that one guy, but I've saved thousands of others. Is the judge going to say, oh, well, let's weigh that out. You're 999 in the positive. You're good to go. What an awful judge. No, that's not what happens. You're judged on the crime. Even if you're a good person, you're judged on your crime. And if we would expect the judge, a human judge, to condemn that man, why would we expect less of God Almighty? So there has to be judgment. And yet he wants to be loving because he is love and merciful because he is merciful. 
So he sent his son to this earth to pay the price, and the wrath fell on him, and that was the price paid. Hey, look, if you had a bunch of parking tickets, and you owed a lot of money, and some benefactor came in in front of you and paid the parking tickets, and you showed up and said, hey, I'm here to pay my parking tickets. You're like, it's paid in full. Somebody paid it. You're free to go. That's what happened. It was a legal transaction. Jesus himself paid the price. His justice was maintained. His love was maintained because he loves you and he did it for you. His mercy was maintained because guess what? You didn't get what you deserve. And his grace is maintained because you do get what you don't deserve. Grace, mercy, love, and justice rolled into one. You find another religion. I'm saying this because you won't. You find another religion that makes sense of that logically. You won't find another religion because they're all based in some sort of works or some sort of a God owes you something because of who you are. Doesn't make sense. And then you give Jesus a try and you realize this guy's real. His truth is real. His word makes sense. I've applied this stuff and you look at God's economy and the world's economy and God says one thing and the world says 180 degrees. If you want to make it in this world, you better step on some heads and you better do what you got to do to get to the top. That's right. Make a lot of money while you're at it. What does God say? Yeah, make a lot of money. That's great. But you're not, your power, your, your influence, your, your worth, your however you want to put it, is not based on how much money you make. It's how much do you share with people. It's not how many people are you stepping on that work for you. How many people are you serving? And you think, well, God's economy is totally opposite of the world's economy, 180 degrees. And if you follow what the world says, you get one thing. And from the world's wisdom, if you think about what God says, you're like, that's not going to work because, because if I esteem everybody else ahead of me, I'm going to be last and I'm not going to have enough food to eat. I'm not going to have clothes to wear. I'm, I'm just going to give everything away and that's it. And everybody's got my stuff and I have, I've got nothing that doesn't work. Ah, but look, a room full of brothers and sisters. If I esteem all of you above me, aren't you esteeming me above all of you? We're all looking out for each other. In God's economy, it works. You can even apply logic to it, and it works. So I'm telling you, the world has it all wrong. Even though the world will sometimes make us happy, and it's easier. God's word has it all right. Even though sometimes it makes us uncomfortable, it makes us need to change. I don't want to change. I'm comfortable. Because, you know, change is painful. Because if something changes in you, that means a part of you has died. It's gone. It no longer exists. And that, that removing of a piece of you, a part of you, is painful. It's gone. It's dying. It's got to be replaced with something else. But that replacement is something better. So, yeah, it's some pain that goes along with it. But the result is closer to truth, closer to righteousness. So if you have never given your heart, your life to Jesus Christ, today is the day. And if you have, and you've got too much of a, a step in the world, people come out of her. Get out of her. That's what it says. Remove yourself. Will it be painful? Yes. That part of you that's there has to remain there and not become a part of you. It'll be ripped off of you. It'll hurt. But when God replaces that, it's better. And that's called growth. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your wisdom. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, everything that you do. And, and we, we read your word and we, and we see your word and we see your wisdom. And 
We know it to be true. But Lord, I pray we don't harden our hearts, staring truth in the face, knowing that it's true because there's something that we want to hold on to, something that we want to cling on to because we know when we let go of that thing, that person, that relationship, that issue, that vice, that whatever it is, that it will hurt. But Father, we, we pray that we have the courage to do just that, to remove ourselves from Babylon, to set our sights on walking the narrow path to the gate that leads to life. And Father, it's not an easy road, but it's your road, and it leads to life. When we look back and see Babylon destroyed, and we'll be so happy that we let it go. Father, we pray that we could be like Job when everything was taken away from him, that we'd have a loose grip on our blessings such that we would look at you when all this stuff is taken away from us. We can say, naked we came into the world, naked we'll return. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we pray that we are people that hold loosely onto the things of this world, even to let go and cling to you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Amen.